vidis, la elanta sonie vico etreinealit, vieme la calenaste. Welcome to Con Langry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me in Wisconsin, we have William Annis. Hello. And uh, Mike is not here with us today. He's visiting his boyfriend and had a uh, a surprise family gathering. I don't know what that exactly means, but it means that he's not here. <laughs> and but. We have a special treat today in that we're going to have two guests. The first one we're just going to have for this opening segment, and he's Skyping us all the way from Germany, staying up really late for us, Karsten Becker. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, before we get started, Karsten, can you talk a little bit about your conlanging and such? I know that you've You've contributed to the show a little bit before with feedback and such. Yeah, I, I wrote some comments and um, I also um, contributed uh, that one header graphic with a script that looks kind of like Javanese kind of stuff. It's my conlang. And um, yeah, I also um, contributed two greetings before. So one in Ayeri, my conlang, and one in German. Yes. Yeah, right. Um, anything else you want to know? <laughs> I don't know. Well, how did you get started in conlanging? Um, well, I must admit, I, I, I think I got got into it through uh, The Lord of the Rings um, when I read it back in ninth grade. That was in 2002 or so, or so I think. Um, and yeah, I, I somehow found all these languages quite fascinating, and I looked for information on them and um, came across the Language Construction Kit by Mark Rosenfelder. And I thought, well, why not give it a go? And, um, yeah, that's how I got into conlanging. Okay. Well, that's, uh, sounds like a fairly typical story, actually. Uh, Quite, it's, yeah. It's very similar well, to... The, the story may be typical, but the resulting language is not typical <laughs> for somebody who started with, with Tolkien. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> you... Ayeri is more... I mean, have you studied any of those languages, Indonesian, Java? Not actually. No, I, I just, I just uh, like the the aesthetics of those languages. Uh -huh. um, and yeah, I, frankly, I'm I'm a little bit bored of all those Elvish conlangs. Um, it's so damn stereotypical. So I wanted to do something different. And um, yeah, as I said, um, I like the aesthetics of southern, uh, southeastern Asian languages, and um, yeah, that's what I ended up with. Great. Yeah. Oh. Um, so, without any further ado, let's get into our main topic. And surprisingly, William suggested this, even though <laughs> he generally hates conscripts. And so, our topic today is technology of literacy. And near as I can tell, it's all the various tools and stuff that are involved in writing – and you know some in some ways how that can affect your writing system uh so we're going to talk about i think we can break down the stuff that uh william you have in in your notes here too one is things that you write on uh 
things that you write with and um, sort of literacy in general. Does that break down about right? I, I think it does. And my point with this is if there are just so many conscripts that look unlikely, mm-hmm. the appearance of the letters makes no sense. There is no writing implement that operates in the three-dimensional universe that would produce letters that look like that. So my That's hope true. is right, my hope is <laughs> that by getting people to think about these things and the influence your reading material has on writing systems, we will get things that look a little less bizarre, that look a little more <laughs> holistic and natural and beautiful and good. So that's yes, my fantasy. We did mm-hmm. we did mention in our uh in our episode on scripts, which was just me and Bianca, I believe, that you should consider at least your writing implements when you are creating your conscript. And even if possible, get a hold of the appropriate implements you want to use and play with them. Right. But I don't think we really uh, went very far in describing various different types. So, William, why don't we go down through your list? The first stuff is things you write on. So the yeah. various medium media that you that you use for writing sure and and another thing i'm hoping is somehow because this is really a very con worldly kind of topic mm-hmm. um that people will do more interesting things if they get around to writing that fantasy novel or whatever there's all sorts of technology of literacy which i have never encountered in your standard medieval world fantasy which ought to be there so that's that's another thing that I'm like, please, please, I want to see wax tablets. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody pretty much deals with um, paper, paper. Somehow they have paper. It's very paper, paper or parchment and styluses yep. and quills, <laughs> which is somehow cheap. Anyway, so yeah, let's get started. So the the first material we'll go with is clay, and that was used by in the Mesopotamian area, the Sumerians. But it was also used in places like Crete. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So the way writing started in the ancient Near East, we're pretty sure, is they had little clay tokens that people would pass around to do business. Mm-hmm. So you'd go to town and you'd say, I'm going to sell you three goats for, you know, this fine sheep. And you'd exchange tokens. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the token sizes and shapes were standard. And then it got sort of difficult if you're doing big business. So you'd need mm-hmm. a pouch to hold all your tokens in. So you had a clay pouch, but you'd have to break it to find out what was inside it. So you would impress on the outside of the pouch what was inside it. And then okay. from there, you've got cuneiform. So some of the standard cuneiform shapes for things like sheep are just squares. Mm-hmm. So some very <laughs> basic commodities are like sh- squares and triangles. And that's because they're not trying to represent the critter. They're trying to represent these clay tokens, which were used for thousands of years before somebody got around to using oh. them <laughs> to impress on the outside of clay. Uh-huh. Anyway, so that's what that's going on. How sort of cuneiform started. Most of what is preserved for us of clay as a writing material comes to us by accident, usually war. Business offices, temple offices got burnt down, which baked the clay. Now, this is very interesting. So you're saying basically that people in uh, in ancient Samaria often didn't actually bake 
the clay for these documents? A lot of it's business documents that don't apply for more than a year, right? You reuse the clay. Uh-huh. Okay. Yep. That's yeah, well, that makes sense, yeah. Um, so, so burning down the office actually preserved the documents. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's absolutely true. That horrible, uh-huh. horrible <laughs> wars and accidents preserve history for us. We know, for example, in Crete, Linear A and Linear B, we suspect they wrote also on leather or bark or something, but the climate there doesn't preserve that material. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, but the clay stuff is preserved for us, again, because of nasty people coming from Northern Europe and burning down cities. Um so that's how we, we get these things and partly why we don't have more interesting uh, literature <laughs> for linear paper. <laughs> but uh, token lists mostly. I, I to- yeah, it's, it's inventories, taxes. Yeah. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So the interesting thing about clay is if that's your standard way of writing things, that wedged shape that we consider, you know, standard is preserved even when they went on to carve things into stone. Like the that doesn't of- surprise me. That doesn't surprise me that much because it seems like it would be easy to chisel a wedge into stone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not all writing systems are easy to chisel into the shape that you're used to. So that's. Yep. I, I just want to mention the- that interesting, interesting little feature there. Mm-hmm. I suppose the more curves uh, a script has, the more difficult it should become to um, chisel it into stone, isn't it? Yeah, the Romans did it, but they had lots of wealth to spread around. Um, okay. uh-huh. yeah. Anything else we want to say about clay? I'm going to talk a little bit about the writing um, instruments for clay in a bit, but do we have anything else we need to say about clay? Um, I don't know. Karsten, do you have anything? No. Um, my, uh, my notes only start with uh, parchment. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the next all, material- all I can... S- uh, go ahead. You, yeah, go ahead. So the next material is papyrus from Egypt. Um, and it's very delicate and a real pain in the butt to make. Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. a particular material, you have these reeds, the reeds are harvested. Um, it turns out papyrus is very useful for building all sorts of things like rope and footwear and all sorts of stuff. Um, but to make papyrus, you have to peel it off, mm-hmm. soak it for a while, slice it thinly, and then beat the crap out of it in layers and let it yep. dry, and then you have to polish it, and it's a pretty complicated process. And you also have to weave it, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's It has to be laid down in a particular pattern, and then it gets pounded, then it's yep. dried out, and then it has to be a, a stone or something rubbed on it to polish one of the sides, which becomes usable for writing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one, now, the most interesting thing I see that you said, probably just because it goes counter to what I think of papyrus, is that... It doesn't survive that well. Mm, no. <laughs> um, it survives great in Egypt because it never rains there. Yep. Right. Exactly. Climatologists, <laughs> climatologists describe Egypt's climate as hyper arid. It rains very rarely and it's mm-hmm. very dry. So up here in Europe, that's why you don't get um, papyrus, right? But instead sure. parchment. We know it was used all over the Roman Empire, but the only place it survives really is North Africa. Okay. Yeah. Because of the climate. Mm-hmm. Um, the only big uh, store of papyrus found in Europe is in Herculaneum in Italy because it was buried by a volcano. The Vesuv uh, explosion, yeah. Yes, the, the, the Vesuvius That's explosion. 
um, and it saves someone's library, which obviously it also mm-hmm. charred it, so it's very difficult to read, but they keep trying. <laughs> All right. So okay. papyrus, it's made of this material. It will wear out with regular use mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Um, if you're very, very careful and the material is very good, you might get a book, a scroll to last about two centuries if you're very lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Right. Some of the things that we find were buried for some reason, either with a person or were preserved in other ways. So things that got used a lot quickly became unusable. So one of our big caches of Greek and Roman material in Egypt from Oxyrhynchus has all of this great papyrus that was thrown away. And on one side is typically literature. And then the literature fell apart because the papyrus were out. And on the back side are personal letters and business notes. Uh huh. <laughs> That's interesting. interesting. <laughs> um, so, I mean, they kept using it. It's a very expensive. I mean, even in Egypt, it was pretty expensive stuff. Um, but it just falls apart. Mm-hmm. Really, only one side is usable for delicate work. That's really important. Um, so why is that exactly? Because of how it's made, one side tends to be rougher. Mm. Oh, okay. The process of polishing one side does damage to the other. Oh, okay. And I, I think... There, uh, part of the production is you needed, um, you wanted this weaving. Well, it wasn't woven. I don't think it was, it was this cross no, pattern it's, but, that was but laid still, out. Right. It's, it's still a cross pattern as far as I know. Right. Um, and I, honestly, I forget some of the details. Um, mm-hmm. for the ancient Middle East, a big problem was if Egypt was in a bad mood, they might embargo you and not sell you any more papyrus. <laughs> That's bad. That's. <laughs> Very bad. So, I think of at least two times that happened. That's that's an interesting thing. If you're writing for something in the real war- world, or if you have a fantasy world, the idea is the reeds grow in a particular environment, right? So yes, and the tech and the sort of knowledge, right? There are papyrus became mm-hmm. extinct in Egypt. The only places that it existed were in, uh, I think, parts of hmm, Sicily, maybe. Uh huh. Um, so it will grow other places, but the, t- the understanding of how to best, you know, produce high quality papyrus might be a trade secret. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Well, that could apply to a lot of these different things. Probably Absolutely. not stuff like, yep. not stuff like clay or anything, but a lot of the papers and stuff have difficult processes. Sure. So that's something you might think about in con worlding. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another thing that, is a big problem for people who are worried about material written on papyrus. Mice find it tasty. <laughs> this okay. is a real problem. If you have a library of papyrus, yep. you must keep the mice out. Isn't that one reason why the Egyptians also kept cats a lot? Well, that's a good reason I mean, to keep cats in general. I mean, mice eat all sorts of things you don't want them eating. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, food, not just your, you know, copy of Homer. So... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, 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 you know, it's, it's worth, you know, I've never heard of mice problems in fantasy novels. That's, that's, that's an issue. I think maybe in Game of Thrones, but usually only in dungeons do they ever mention the rats. <laughs> right, right. Even, um, even in a, in a hardcore, gritty, realistic fantasy like that, they just, they just don't mention them most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> So, do we have anything else to say about papyrus before we move on? Um, 
You mentioned that there's many shapes that are possible with papyrus. So sure. So unlike clay, which is a difficult material to write in because it's messy, um, if you scrape mm-hmm. the clay out, so mm-hmm. cuneiform is impressed, and you have a limited number of shapes available based on the reed shape. Um, papyrus is effectively painted upon, so you have a lot more flexibility, more curves, and so forth are possible yep. on okay. any of these paper-like surfaces. So I guess it it will depend probably on what your writing implement is, uh, sure. what you what you can do more than anything else for papyrus. I right. just wanted to mention that because part of what we're ostensibly doing is giving people advice as to what how to design their writing system. So the fact that papyrus can support a wide variety of different shapes and curves and stuff is, is yes. an important That's thing important. to know. Yeah. 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 Right. So, so the next writing surface is great. And this is the one I most want to start hearing about in fantasy novels. And that <laughs> is wax tablets. These mm-hmm. were used in the Greco-Roman world for day-to-day mm-hmm. stuff. They were used by students learning to write. Um, some longer-term material was written on these. And what they would do is they would take a a, a flat piece of wood and carve out a, a square part in the middle or a rectangular part in the middle that was slightly recessed. And they would fill that with colored wax. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So you need the edges to hold the wax in. And then to write things, you would simply – you had a, a rather dangerous-looking – implement that was used to scrape scrape out the wax for the letters mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. like a scalpel no how it's, what it's called in english um uh, you could use a, a knife scalpel yeah a scalpel right yeah sure sure um and all you had to do to reuse it was heat it up a little bit and the wax would melt and you were done um mm-hmm. and you can use it again and, and very often they were paired Two of them that faced each other, you know, kind of a diptych. A diptych, right. Yeah. Um, to protect the text a little bit was the most common shape. So you had like a little notebook of two yeah. sides, pages, whatever. Right, right. Okay. Um, and, and you see them in uh, bas-relief and sculptures and uh, vase paintings and so forth. You see Greeks and Romans using these things. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, one, one thing that uh, comes, to, comes uh, to my mind here... Um, is uh, the Roman common letters, um, their handwriting, it looked like, um, I think it was somewhere described as hens um, humping each other or something. Um, <laughs> is that also a result of, uh, um, of uh, right. the writing exactly. material? This okay. is another one of those cases. Roman handwriting is very vertical. Mm-hmm. And that is because... Uh-huh. It's barely legible to me. <laughs> it is, yeah, it, 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 it takes a special skill to learn how to read. Um, yep. In fact, there's a famous find of, uh, of texts written on wood, not actually wax tablets, but written on wood um, at a fort near Hadrian's Wall called Vindolanda, and they're called the Vindolanda Tablets. And even when the Romans weren't writing in wax, their handwriting was had the same wax tablet character. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So this is another example where the material you're writing on most of the time gets transferred to other medium. And when people first found the Vindolanda tablets, they had a very hard time reading them. Yeah. I think I found found a, uh, a picture of that, um, of those uh, Roman handwriting um, on Wikipedia once, but uh, just uh, entering Latin alphabet into Wikipedia, I can't find it right now, unfortunately. Yeah, if you if you do um, a search on Greek and Latin paleography, 
Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few standard manuals that are available in archive.org, which will have pictures of all of these different handwriting okay. systems. Um, yeah. The, the really interesting thing to me about wax tablets is that they were used in Europe until the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's long. Um, so especially, especially for material of only really transient importance, like effectively grocery lists, really quick things, things that you didn't need to preserve for a long time, they would go into wax tablets. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, because, um, because all you have to do is like hold it over a candle and then right. it's erased or bake yep. it or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's the fact that they were used for such a long time. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Anybody who's setting it in the traditional, uh, European, medieval European fantasy setting probably should be having these wax tablets around, but nobody ever has them. Nobody ever has mm-hmm. them. Um, <laughs> the, the, the terrible, the just terrible TV series, uh, Spartacus. Uh huh. Um, what's it? Never seen it. it. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> um, they have the, owners of the ludus actually using these so that that would that small mm-hmm. tidbit actually made me happy compared to the rest of the show mm-hmm. yeah especially considering uh that these in these settings paper really should be extremely expensive and parchment is always very expensive right exactly so yeah um so karsten you gonna say something i don't know yeah, one thing I'd like to plug in. Um, I did some research uh, myself this week um, about writing materials, and on Wikipedia I also find an article, found an article on uh, cursed tablets, and it said um, that those are usually made of lead or other um, soft um, metals, and would usually have curses um, inscribed on them, and were typical of the Greco-Roman world also. Yeah, yeah, the curse tablets, the, the defixiones, are great. You would write a curse on lead, and you'd fold it up, and then you'd chuck it into a well or bury it somewhere, because that was closer to the sort of <laughs> subterranean gods that you wanted uh-huh. to wreak havoc on someone. Yeah. So I just wanted to plug that in, um, because I wondered whether uh, metal was also a possible um, thing to write on. Uh it was sometimes, right? You'd beat uh, some metal thin and inscribe it, but it was only used... I mean, that's really expensive, so that's only used yep. for special things. I yep. mean, lead is easier to work with if you don't mind being poisoned. Also poisonous, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, can you just imagine that you're drinking out of a well that people are chucking lead sheets into? <laughs> <laughs> well, they they used lead piping, too, so yeah, it's lead not pipes. like the Romans yeah. really understood anyway, the this, issue. this isn't about ways that you're... Con- culture can poison itself by accident but yeah lead tablets i've seen um gold tablets that had some writing on them mm-hmm. um but it, it obviously it's it's for special things like this yeah you're p- probably the softer metals you could use but any metal in in this time period we're talking about is going to be really expensive so mm. all right anything else about wax tablets apart from everyone should have them in their con worlds well anyone in Doing certain settings, yeah. should. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not really. Okay. I think well, we can move on. One thing, just quick, I wanted to mention was ostracon or ostraca. Um, mm-hmm. That's where we get the word ostracize. It's basically chunks of pottery that broke. Mm-hmm. We'll take ink or you can scratch in them. So like um, okay. the Greek, um, they had those shards um, where they would inscribe names on for, for uh, voting. 
Yes. Isn't that? Okay. Right. And that's where we get the word ostracize, right? You, everyone say Socrates is a jerk. Mm-hmm. And they'd say, let's vote on it. And when people would write it down and then they count and say, yes, he's a jerk and has to go. And then he was banned. Yes. Okay. Um, the, that, the, that reminds me another one that probably is, would not be nearly as cheap as your Ostracon, but, um, writing on bone, just because the fir- the earliest, like, surviving texts we have of Chinese characters are on, right. are painted or, or, um, carved onto bone. Right. Right. Oh, no. That was, I mean, that was a ritual practice. I can't imagine that being used for a practical day-to-day use, but yes. Yeah, it's, I guess you could paint on bone pretty easily, but carving bone is probably a little difficult because it's fibrous. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then the last thing I want to mention about Ostrakhan is Egypt is awash in limestone. So they, it was very easy to produce big flakes of that and day to day business that you might use either on the back of cheap falling apart papyrus could also end up on limestone. It takes mm-hmm. ink pretty, mm-hmm. pretty easily. So that's it for Ostrakhan. So the next material is vellum and parchment, basically animal skins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like a really thin kind of leather, actually, I think. Yeah, effectively. It? I mean, and once again, it's a nuisance to make. You have to get the right kind of animal and you have to treat the yeah. leather and you have to get it thin. It is much, much more durable than any uh-huh. writing material that isn't stone that we've ever come up with. It yep. will last a very long time. If it but, doesn't tear or uh, get holes from the ink. Right, right. Yeah, but it is ext- extremely expensive and time-consuming time, time to make because you're skinning an animal and and processing it. Um, one thing I find interesting, and this is maybe like a side note, but um, f- I remember reading an article that because of the use of parchment, all of our standard book sizes that we have are derived basically from that, yeah. derived from mark monks folding animal skins however many times yep to make pages uh, of parchment uh, well maybe maybe <laughs> well obviously um, different different um different cows will be bit slightly different sizes so it's not <laughs> exactly <laughs> Well, um, the uh, codices are made, um, or well, at least the page c- page count um, does not go by page like uh, books today, but actually mm-hmm. by layer. So uh, you've got, um, uh, well, layer one, uh, uh, front and reverse, and layer two, front and reverse, and so on. Um, so um, at least for bookmaking, those um, pages of parchment were... Um, yeah, were um, folded like like a brochure, as far as I know. Sure, mm-hmm. and then, I mean that that practice will work in any material that's flexible. So it works mm-hmm. just as well with paper as it does with parchment. Mm-hmm. That's true. Why um, then don't we see books uh, made of papyrus? We do. Oh, oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, um, we could, let's talk about that a little bit because there's an interesting sort of cultural thing about the scroll versus the book. Codex form, but I have that. Oh, further down I, in my I, notes. I, I forgot about that. You, you actually also have a little section on formats. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, how um, how the writing is organized. Right. One um, thing Karsten alluded to earlier is there's a problem with vellum and parchment in that it is not absorbent. Mm-hmm. So you need inks that adhere very well, or it will flake off. Mm-hmm. One of the standard inks used on parchment not only adhered well, but is slightly corrosive and over time is capable of eating away at the parchment. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk mm-hmm. about inks in a moment, but this is something to, to consider is parchment is modestly absorbent. Paper is very absorbent. Parchment is not very absorbent at all. So that presents ink challenges. Um, the other thing about parchment is even though it's pretty darn thin, it's still thicker than paper, certainly. So if you want to, you can take apart a book you no longer want, erase it, you know, scrape off the surface with pumice or whatever, and then rewrite on the surface if you can get it polished. And that's called called a palimpsest, right? Yes, a palimpsest. Um, Mm -hmm. This is interesting for European history because if you're lucky, you can see the text behind the, the erasure isn't perfect. Right. So sometimes the only documentary evidence we have of, I don't know, Cicero is a palimpsest, right? You had an old book of Cicero. They said, we need a book of Psalms. So they erased it and rewrote, but we can still, with time, pull the old text out. Yep. And what's also interesting, um, as far as I know, um, sometimes they still find um, snippets of parchment um, in old book covers where uh, Snippets of parchment were used to reinforce, um, well, the the cover. Yes, right. When books start falling apart, they reuse the material. Right. Um, we sometimes find ancient Egyptian texts in mummies. Okay. <laughs> they, 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 they basically turned the, um, again, once your papyrus starts to fall apart, they reused it. They used it like paper mache to produce uh-huh. um, uh, mummy cartonage. Um, we recently about seven or eight years ago, discovered a new poem by Sappho because of a mummy in Cologne. Uh-huh. That's a little gross. <laughs> yeah, well. Like like they stuff it inside the mummy. Uh, no, it's used to, it's like paper mache. It's used to produce the wrapping on the outside. Okay. Oh, okay. He's not stuffed oh. inside. <laughs> that would not gross. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, I, thought, I I I was wondering because I thought that the uh, the wrappings were themselves sort of a ritual thing with spells written on them. Well, sure, there's some of that, but you might make a, a, a kind of somewhat sturdy mask. I mean, there's various parts of the whole process oh, used, okay. and, and over time, different practices are followed. Um, anyway, yeah, so you can find old parchment um, as book binding, um, and like papyrus, mice find parchment tasty. Mm. <laughs> All right. Anything else about parchment? Um, well, when we when I dealt at uni um, with uh, medieval literature, we were also told that um, basically you can get um, well a pair of very warm gloves for the winter, or a couple of pages of parchment, and um, because the stuff is just so damn expensive, and I think that's maybe something important uh, to consider for um, your con-worlding or con-culturing. Right. Just right. the price of parchment so that um, p- uh, parchment wouldn't be um, available just everywhere and you wouldn't just scribble uh, your everyday, uh, well, uh, notes on them. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what those so are. I'd say, 
important to consider? I'd say, I'd say probably among these things, depending on your environment, of course, and, and, uh, how, how much trade is going on. Parchment is probably going to be one of the most expensive things to use among these different, uh, media. Probably. Mm hmm. Probably. Are we done with parchment? Yeah. I think so. All right. So the next is palm leaves, which were used all over South Asia and Southeast Asia. Um, and basically you take the palm leaf, um, you cut it out in particular shapes. It would be prepared to make the surface a little more likely to take ink. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were two ways you could use this material. You could either use an adhesive ink or mm-hmm. you could delicately incise on the surface with a, a, a thing like a, a needle and uh-huh. then rub ink into it and then rinse it off. And uh-huh. where the fibers were broke, the ink would stay. I think that now, would explain. I want to say. Just go on. Yeah. I want to say when, when you put this on your list, I was imagining just write, write, writing straight on a palm leaf, but obviously this is, this is prepared and maybe not with a process as complex as paper or papyrus, but it has some preparation going oh, into absolutely. it before you write absolutely. on it. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, what I wanted to add is that, um, I, th- I guess, uh, since you scratch, uh, with a needle, that's also why, um, southern, uh, southern, uh, East Asian scripts seem to uh, avoid um, self-intersecting letters like yes. L. Yes. So if you look, for example, at Javanese or um, Balinese, those are two of my favorites. Um, yeah, you can see that pretty well, I think. Right. And I don't understand how those guys didn't go blind. Because the entire time okay. you're writing the text, you're <laughs> only scratching it into the surface, which must be very hard to see. It's not until you expose it to that dye that the uh-huh. text pops up. So you can basically just sit uh, on the beach in the bright daylight. Yeah, and, uh, you would have to. You would have to. Bow over it and um, strain your eyes. Okay. <laughs> yes, yes. But I, I think it makes sense because it's a leaf. Again, it's not particularly absorbent. The mm-hmm. scratching technique must produce and, and dyeing must produce text that's less likely to flake off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How durable are palm leaves? Not particularly durable. I mean, they'll last a yeah. while. Uh, but consider the climate they're in. Mm-hmm. Very wet. Definitely. Very wet. Um, typically, what will happen is you'll have um, the, the leaves are quite narrow and long. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be a hole in either the middle or there'll be two sort of third ways. And then a string will connect them all together so they do not get out, um, of, out, yeah. of, out of part. And they may be stored in boxes if they're important texts. Yeah, I, I'm seeing on uh, in your notes um, you've got a link, and um, that page also has a, uh, an image of um, well, kind of a, co- a codex of um, palm leaves. Yeah, yeah, I will put that in the show notes because that that short sort of shows the uh, the string thing and also what mm. the palm leaves actually look like after they're processed. They're sort of just sort of brownish, yeah, rectangular right. things. Yeah, and you've got. Although- just like six lines on them, six lines of text or something. Sure. And and what's interesting mm-hmm. about this shape is even when cheap paper became available, this format was preserved mm-hmm. by the mm-hmm. cultures. So I have I have calligraphy from all over the world, and one of the things I have is a a page of a Buddhist sutra in Manchu. Mm-hmm. 
and it's wow. in this and it's in this this format, this very wide. Okay. I mean, it's it's bigger than probably a palm leaf ever was, but it's still the same format, very long mm-hmm. and and short. Mm-hmm. Um, so it spread to, uh, spread up to northern uh, northern China. I, I think it was associated but, with Buddhism. Okay, but the format did not necessarily the material. Right. I don't think palm leaves made it to Manchuria. Okay. Well, I thought, well, maybe by trade or something. I mean... Well, it made it as pretty far north. It's certainly uh, throughout most of South Asia and Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. right? You had a papyrus trade in the Middle East and you had mm-hmm. palm leaf trade in, in that whole region. Okay. I mean, it's entirely mm-hmm. possible it went as far as China, but the Chinese had paper very, very early. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and once again... Palm leaves, things like to eat it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, a lot of these things will be eaten. Yes. Um, anything else about palm leaves? No. Okay. So um, now we're moving on to more paper-like things. Um, in Mesoamerica, they have amate, which is processed bark from either a fig tree or a mulberry tree. And it's mm-hmm. boiled and pounded and all sorts of things happen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, expensive to produce, but it, this was the standard material for producing books for the Maya and the Aztec. Um, mm-hmm. interestingly, it was also used for adornment, like earrings, and hats and things. Mm-hmm. So that's all I have to say about Amate. Um, in China, no. what? No, I'm just looking up a word uh, because I don't know what it's, uh, Oh yeah, it's, in English. It's, it's, um, amate, there is no English word. It's amate. Okay. Is, no, I was looking up Holzschliff. Um, Holzschliff uh, is uh, is a kind of paper that's made from uh, from wood pulp. Oh yeah, it says in English uh, ground wood pulp or wood sanding, and um, so that's still a way to make uh, paper today. So you yeah. just tread trees, and um, well, make make the fibers into a mush, and then dry that kind of. Yeah. yeah, but the, yeah, the yeah. amate is made from the bark, not from pulp, really. Right, okay. Yeah, it's, yeah. Used from, it's used from bark layers. And it's still used in parts of Mesoamerica as either for either sort of cultural, ceremonial purposes or sort of touristy things, or, or art, mm-hmm. sort of indigenous art. Um, the Chinese used silk. All we have to say about this is that it's very expensive. <laughs> um, uh, I would imagine... Do you um, just like paint on silk, yeah, basically? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, just like you would with. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Got to be very careful with that, I think, because um, it bleeds quite a lot, doesn't it? Well, so does rice paper. Okay, so if you've yeah, well, which we we'll, can, we'll, we'll get to. We'll that get in a to. Um, another thing used in China, which was really interesting, is they would make um, long, thin slips of bamboo or sometimes wood, um, which were wide enough to hold a single column of characters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they'd string them all along with two strings down, different parts. Um, and then you'd roll this thing up. It would look sort of like a Venetian blind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of our earliest copies of classical Chinese texts come to us from archaeological sites, and they're on these bamboo slips. So do they also the bind that- them to, to scrolls? Yeah, they basically tie the – I mean, with the string down the middle, they get big, long scrolls of this stuff. Okay. Um, I've seen sort of Chinese artwork done in a similar manner. I uh, this makes me think: could any of these writing materials actually uh actually affect what ordering 
what um what directionality the script has. I would think probably not because you could just as easily make the bamboo slips have horizontal text as vertical. Text, right. Sure. But, absolutely. Um, um, I think there's there's something that you'll get we'll get to in a little bit that may may uh, make it clear that one one reason that one particular order is very rare is uh, is because of its difficulty in writing. Um, right. Um, and uh, sort of from an archaeological problem, if your string breaks, then you have opportunities to be sad. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> the whole line is missing. <laughs> yes, yes, lines are missing, and you hit each line is in a different order. So it's fun for archaeologists. Um, but um, what about mice? <laughs> and uh, problem I, mice might work on wood, but they do a lot less damage to wood than they do okay, paper. Probably more like termites or something. Wood, but I don't know yeah. whether they have yeah, those wood and 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 bamboo is also really really tough. It is tough. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, they build uh, scaffolds out of them. So sure. Sure. Um, and wood they slips. They still do that. Oh, yeah, they sure do. Yeah, um, they definitely do that, yeah. Wood slips or tablets were used basically everywhere writing was used, as far as I'm able to tell. China, Rome, Mesoamerica, all of those places had wood as an opportunity to use. Depending on where you are, wood might be too valuable. And it's a little um, clumsy. It's kind of big and heavy. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so I would expect it would be used... Normally, you'd want scrap wood, like with Ostracon. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. The Vindolanda tablets, I don't understand that, but definitely this wood was being prepared for the purpose of writing on it and sending it around. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, another material used sort of marginally in some places is birch bark, used in India, mm-hmm. used in Russia, interestingly. Um, well, there's lots of trees in Russia, probably, um, like in the north. Sure, sure. Birch is kind of a margin tree. Lots of opportunities to go there. Birch, Uh, uh, am I correct? Birch has very, very, like, white bark, doesn't it? Some kinds do, yeah. The the bigger point is is that the bark bark peels off neatly, and you can do that without killing the tree. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we get to the biggie, paper, Mm -hmm. which is about two two millennia old. The Chinese came up with it. it usually gets called rice paper, but it was made from a bunch of different kinds of things. Rice straw, mulberry, yes. hemp, bamboo, all sorts of stuff would be pulped and put on screens and turned into sheets. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I want to say, and you have a note here saying that rice paper is very, very absorbent, uh, making it so that you can only write on one side because it bleeds through. Yeah. Um, I have experience writing with uh, rice paper in mm-hmm. uh, Chinese calligraphy classes, and another thing that that absorbentness affects is the way that you have to write in rice paper. The actual speed at which you make a stroke is important. Very important. Mm-hmm. Yes, because basically, if you hold the uh, hold the brush there for too long, you'll get big blotches. So, like the highest calligraphy calligraphy forms are very very cursive yeah and the reason they're so difficult to 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 um master is you actually have to write extremely fast because you're making one basically one gigantic curvy stroke and you have to do it really quick so that Mm -hmm. you don't get ink spots all over the character Mm -hmm. 
And that's that. I think you, yeah, you mentioned it in your notes. You, you don't want to write too slowly. That's the the trick. And a point that's going to be relevant shortly is effectively only one site is usable once you've written on it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I sort of mentioned in passing stone. I've already mentioned the Egyptians used limestone, but I'm thinking more in terms of sort of monumental um, uses of stone. Mm-hmm. Of course, any like with the Romans, uh, those um, pillars Rome. like the Trajan, um, sure, whatever it's called, um, the Trajan Column. Uh, with mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. alphabet on it that that um, our antiqua letters are based on the capital letters. Mm-hmm. Do you mean that? Uh, well, everywhere. For example, Every, any place, okay. any place writing was used, it gets carved into stone. What's interesting okay. to me about that is the predominant writing material of a culture. Its quirks may be copied into stone. Like I said about Mesoamerica, when they carved cuneiform, they carved wax, you know, clay wedges. Uh-huh. The Romans, the Romans copied their writing system. Um, the Mesoamericans copied their writing system into stone, and the Egyptians, in tremendously fussy way, copied their writing system into stone. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, Egyptian and Mesoamerican are, th- are the ones that are probably the ones that are most clear because those are two writing systems that are very hard to do in stone because of the fact that there's so many curves and mm-hmm. intricate almost pictures that you have to make. Um, I would say probably the biggest thing about stone is if you are writing something in stone or, you know, chiseling something into stone, you expect it to last for thousands of years, depending on what kind of stone it may erode over time, but generally it's going to last for a very long time. So you take your time on that stuff and plan it out beforehand before you get it carved into stone. So it doesn't really surprise me that different writing materials quirks can get copied into stone because you just want, you want it to be perfect. That's all. Mm-hmm. My understanding was, is that often the people carving the material in Egypt were not literate, so you'd get a scribe in who would paint everything on the material, mm-hmm. and then the mm-hmm. people would come in and carve around it. And then I don't know who was responsible. Some of the Egyptian stuff, in addition to being carved, was painted in day glow colors. Mm-hmm. Like individual, oh, wow. individual glyphs got painted their appropriate color. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind um, of that's, awesome. that's very decorative, but... Another thing I found on Wikipedia, um, if you go to the page on the Javanese script, um, it's got a, a, an image uh, way down the page um, where there is a, a stone memorial, which has an inscription in the Javanese script. And it also looks very funny because you've still got all those um, elaborate curvy letters, uh-huh. um, but they're mm-hmm. carved into stone. And um, I suppose yeah. that's, that's course, quite difficult uh, to make. It looks um, like a fairly modern... Thing. Yeah, it so, is, that looks very and, modern. Yeah, and modern stone cutting techniques make it pretty easy to modern. Yeah, okay, to do modern. That. But I think that's um, something worth also to but, mention. Um, that's true. All right. So, anything else about stone? No. Um, not really. The there's nothing really. I don't. I don't think. It, I can't really think of. So. Inks and paints and so forth. So for a lot of material, basically all you need for ink is lamp black 
and some sort of binding agent like gum arabic or animal glue. And lamp black is easy, right? You just burn a candle or oil and put something over the flame and that black goo will accumulate. Mm-hmm. Right? That's soot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, scrape that off and then you mix it with some water and, you know, gum arabic or animal glue or something like that. Voila, mm-hmm. you've got ink. Um, and that's a very common ink material. It can be a little difficult to make because lamp black, because it's basically a hydrocarbon material, does not want to mix with water. Mm. So it may, in fact, take you several days to mix your lamp black ink just to get everything wet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But other than that, that it's it's the material is easy to have. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned that. Parchment is non-absorbent, so what they tended to use on those were iron gall inks, um, and those are made from uh, certain kinds of bugs. Uh, plant uh, plant lay eggs in the stems and leaves of oak trees, and the oak tree responds by producing this giant gall, which has a huge amount of tannic acid. Mm-hmm. Um, tannic acid is what makes tea that dark color, and so oh, they wow. would they would use the um, uh, these galls and mix them with um, iron salts, which could be made with hematite and sunlight. Uh-huh. And you would get this beautiful ink that um, wrote initially with a very light color, but over time it would oxidize into this deep, dark, sort of brown, black color uh-huh. that we associate with really old drawings. Um, and it is slightly corrosive and that's the problem if your ink was too acidic it will in time destroy your book mm-hmm. <laughs> oh dear so this drives um museum conservators crazy because <laughs> you might have this beautiful old book that may be slowly dissolving itself yeah um so we do have some really really great old parchment texts which got the, the mix bad and are falling apart mm-hmm Mm-hmm. You have to be very careful to to mix it right. And and most in, in people other words. Op- I mean, and they didn't care. Most people don't care because in their lifetime and the lifetime of their children, it's not an issue. It's when you get these books that last for centuries because parchment lasts mm-hmm. a long time that the problem becomes really evident. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, I see. Um, uh, the the same problem happens with sepia inks. So sepia is the name of a cuttlefish, right? Like a squid or an octopus dude. Um, and that ink produces a beautiful um, brownish ink, but that also requires um, a little acid in it to work, mm-hmm. um, which also is hard. So we have lots of drawings of Michelangelo that are dissolving themselves because his sepia ink was too corrosive. Mm-hmm. That's unfortunate. <laughs> right, right. So the conservatives come up with massive chemistry to try to preserve these things. Anyway, mm-hmm. So I'm just mentioning that if you have a non-absorbent writing material, you might need magic special inks. Um, in your con world, that may not matter. The time frame may not be sufficient. But if you have really old books, mm-hmm. right, when Gandalf is in the library, some of his books ought to be falling apart. Okay. <laughs> Good in, to know. In various different ways, partly because of the of iron gall inks, some of them may be, be being eaten by mice. Sure. All this kind sure. of stuff. Yeah. Um, um, so one interesting thing, though, is iron gall inks are still used in some places. For example, in British law, when you sign a contract or certain kinds of legal documents, they want that signature not to go away. Mm-hmm. So uh-huh. they use these iron gall inks, which over time destroy their pens. 
<laughs> it's hard on fountain pens, so they have to yep. use a bunch of those. <laughs> That's kind of hilarious. Um, I've seen a note on the internet uh, when I was looking for um, recipes for uh, for making ink yourself once, and um, that you shouldn't um, actually put uh, iron gall ink into uh, fountain pens because they clog up um, and also corrode, obviously. Yes, yes, yes. The the longer an iron gall ink is exposed to air, the more um, uh, iron particles precipitate yeah. out. So, mm. um, for other kinds of colors that might be used in pens or, or brushes, um, the best I mean you can get them out of like walnut or various plant materials. Um, but the Egyptians and the Chinese both were happy to take precious or semi-precious stones and pulverize them. Mm-hmm. Which again takes a very, very long time. Um, but you get these beautiful blue green colors out of pulverized lapis lazuli or whatnot. So that's also yeah. probably making it very, uh, very expensive, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Doesn't very, very expensive. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, um, certainly if you're using semi precious stones. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. lapis lazuli. Um, or malachite or whatnot. Um, there's a really interesting, um, blue color used in Mesoamerica, which is made of a special clay and indigo. And it's this beautiful light blue color that we see all over that art. Um, and what's great was until again, about the 1800s, people may make their own ink. So we have, for example, Jane Austen's favorite recipe for ink. Mm-hmm. Oh, we should That's find that, a link to that. <laughs> which she, she, uh, she sent a letter to her sister with her recipe for ink. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of them are quite crazy. There are all sorts of strange things. They would add wine. They would try to find ways because, like I said, iron gall inks need preservatives, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's a whole mm-hmm. technology uh-huh. there, which you could, if you wanted to get into, you could. But, you know, maybe we don't need to, to go into that. Mm-hmm. I don't, I think generally we're talking about maybe adding depth to a fantasy novel. Unless one of the main characters of your novel is like a chronicler. You may not really want to go into details of the recipes for inks. If you have somebody who's like a scribe or a chronicler or somebody, maybe they have their favorite recipe for ink and you can, you can work on that. But otherwise, eh, just kind of keep a few things in mind, I think. But the point was you made it yourself. You did not go down to the store and right. buy the stuff. If you're literate at all, you were typically responsible for producing all of the hardware you needed, except possibly parchment. And, and paper-like mm-hmm. things. Anyway, so... Now, um, you didn't mention here uh, sort of Chinese ink stones. What, what right, material so that. is that even? So that's just um, lamp black and animal glue mixed up nicely and then allowed to dry. Oh, so, okay. So okay. for people who don't know, in China and Japan, you get ink sticks. So they would make the glue, mix up the lamp black, add the, the goo let it dry out into these beautiful sticks. And then you had a semi-abrasive stone with a well in it, and you would grind your ink every time you needed it. This is, yeah, you just this grind is, it and add some water. Add some water. It's, it's preservative, right, because it's not wet all the time. You only have what you need. Um, it's a little bit mm-hmm. tedious to make. Um, and ink sticks themselves became objects of art. Mm-hmm. Yes. But it's just sort of... Uh, I'm sure a lot of Chinese calligraphers still swear by the the ink stones, even though now you can just get ink in bottles. And, right, and, you can, uh, but it smells that. funny. So your Chinese teacher, you know, might sniff your calligraphy homework and, and complain if you use the stuff from the bottle. 
All right. I, I won't explain how I know that. Anyway, um, are we ready to move on to formats? Uh, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. All right. So we've sort of skipped over the shape that your material, you, you know, your writing material might be in. Very common ancient mater- uh, shape is the scroll. Has a little romance around it. It's very common with any flexible material, but it's a huge pain in the butt to consult a large text with. Yep. Because you have to mm-hmm. roll to wherever you need to, to find. You can't just flip through. Well, you still get Torahs um, as scrolls in synagogues. Sure, sure. And that's, again, sort of this tradition conservatism yep. associated with it. And right. it wears out quickly because you're constantly bending the material. This is why papyrus, unless it was very well cared for, didn't last for very long. If you were using the text all the time, this constant flexing on not highly but somewhat processed plant fibers would wear out. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think conservatism kept the scroll format in use in um, the Mediterranean. And it was when Christianity came on the scene and with a religious tradition that required consulting things a lot <laughs> that the book shape <laughs> suddenly became more popular. So we have some early Christian scrolls, which were then cut up and put into books. <laughs> into the book shape. Into the book shape. And so they, they, um, look, they look terrible, right? None of the edge, none of the margin edges match. Yeah, like, they, they look very ratty. Um, but this was sort of um, the first step of using that system. Uh-huh. How to? That's so interesting. One thing about a scroll is how exactly do you just write one big long text? No, just on columns. the paper and then roll it up, or what? Yeah, you you uh, typically you wrote uh, columns of a few inches width. Mm-hmm. And then when you reach the bottom, you roll it up and go on to the top of the next section and do the same thing and just keep going until you were done. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's not just uh, one whole fr- – uh, it's not um, continuous just from the beginning way down to the end, but um, you get uh, kind of um, – well, chap- no, not, not chapters, but um, paragraphs and, and stuff like that. Well, I guess if you have a vertical script, you could just write it continuously. Right. So in, in, Chinese, in Chinese scrolls, yes, you expect the vertical writing system is very comfortable for that. But a horizontal writing system, that works less well. So what would happen is you would write, you know, a few inches worth of width in a column. And then when you mm-hmm. reach the bottom, you move over to the next and start a new column. Okay. Yep. Um, and like, as, as George mentioned, in not George, Karsten Mekin, in synagogues, the Torah still has the format of a scroll. And that's mm-hmm. that's the way it's always been, and that's the way it's always going to be. Um, it's just a historical thing. Yeah, it's it's tradition. Um, the next shape is the accordion book, which is where basically you have um, one long strip, typically of paper. The Mayans did this as well, so amate, mm-hmm. and then you fold it up accordion style, and then just write on the facing pages. So, like in a brochure, also. For example, uh, you, you get sure. those those folded um, little leaflets things. Sure. Um, typically, the way that uh-huh. the Chinese do it is you um, have the book is printed um, or written, mm-hmm. and then the way it's sewed, each page is basically two pages. Mm-hmm. Right. If you push on it, you can you can see the blank back pages. But because rice paper is so thin, um, you really can't use both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. Like I say, this is primarily used in China and its cultural zone, and the Mayans also did this with Amate, except their this material was so thick that they could write on both sides. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then the last shape is the Codex, which is the book shape that we know and love. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and which requires a somewhat sturdy writing material because it has to be flexible um, and to survive multiple kinds of flexing. Papyrus was put into the Codex shape, but it's not really well suited to it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because it wears out. Right. Right. It did, I, I would guess it would wear out even more to keep a book open. Pages, yeah, pages just kind of fall out, probably. Right, and the edges wear off very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. I mean, the the edge of papyrus is its most weak spot. Mm-hmm. All right. Anything else about those? Um, as far as I know, um, codices um, usually had uh, wood covers. So you uh, the the um, not lid, but uh, what do you call it? Um, the, the thing that goes on top of the book. So the top cover and the bottom cover, they were typically made of wood, I think. Yeah, various materials have been used over time. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So writing tools. So for, for cuneiform, you used a reed cut into a particular shape. Um, I have a video um, of showing somebody with a lump of plasticine clay and a chopstick um, showing you how we think um, that was used. Um, there's a great um, academic website explaining all about sort of Assyrian history and the, the language a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, for wax tablets, that stylus had one very pointy end, which I would guess could be used to jab someone if you really needed to. Um, and the other end was sort of fanned out flat into either a spoon-like shape or a, a fan-like shape. Um, and that would be used to smooth over wax if you needed to, to start over. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So it's sort of like equivalent to uh, pencils having a writing end and an eraser end almost. Yeah, I mean, obviously you're scraping at wax rather than erasing, but yeah, it's the same idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so um, the pointy end of the stylus, is it like a needle? It's or? pretty darn sharp. I mean, it's not okay. it's not a needle, but it comes to a pretty serious point. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. I, I was just th- asking if it was more like a needle or more like a scalpel shape. It was more like a needle shape than a scalpel shape. It was a point, not a cutting instrument. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, um, and this is relevant, is because of its shape and because of the material you're writing in, you basically can only write up and down. And more mm-hmm. to the point, you can drag the the the, the stylus down. You mm-hmm. can sort of move it horizontally, but there is no way you can write upwards. Mm-hmm. And that's right. also tablet. influencing how your letters and characters will look like. Right. And this is true for a bunch of, of writing things. And um, we can come back to that again and, and mention this, because I think it's a really important point in a lot of mm-hmm. yes. um, con- yes. conscripts that I think look terrible. Right. Um, um, another, George, you have more to say about the pointy thing? No. Okay. So then we have brushes. Mm-hmm. Very popular, obviously, in China. Because a brush has lots of ink and Chinese paper is very absorbent, you cannot stop. You must move quickly. Um, yes, you just have to kind of <laughs> keep moving. You do not stop. You do not dilly-dally mm-hmm. around. Um, and I think... Um, I Go ahead. I want to mention very quickly, I don't know if this has to be this way, but also the grip for holding a brush is very different from the grip that you would use... Very definitely different from the grip you use with a pen. Probably the the grip that you would use with for any 
different stylus, at least in Chinese calligraphy, because yeah, you yeah. actually, I may find like a video or something to show, show this, but basically you want to hold the brush up vertically. Yeah. And I don't know exact why exactly that is, whether it's just a Chinese cultural thing. I think it no, may have to well, do with keeping your hand off the paper and stuff. It's probably also to, to make the ink flow, um, better so that the ink can float just straight down. That is true. And particularly when you're writing Chinese script, there's particular ways that you want to put the brush down in order to make the basic strokes. Mm-hmm. And that works better if you're coming down vertically from the top. And particular ways you want to lift the brush up off the paper. I mean, the characteristic look of handwritten Chinese has to do with everything to do with that brush, how it is put onto the paper, how it is taken off the paper, and how it moves across the paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I think really in an ideal situation, if you can do it, get whatever implements, particularly brushes, but any implements that you want to use and uh, media that you want to use to develop your script and actually play with them because, you know, the brush- brushes have these particular qualities that, you know, depending on your grip and how you're writing it can affect the character of your script. And I think that's probably true of all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, we already mentioned that if you're using the Chinese style, they not in the in addition to the brushes, you have the ink stones and the ink sticks, and that sort of spread out everywhere. The culture one, mm-hmm. and then the the other thing is reed or quill pens. Mm-hmm. You have some mm-hmm. sort of hollow plant material which is cut into a shape with a split down the point to move ink from the body of this hollow carved out material, which could hold a little reserve ink. Um, and then move it to the writing surface. Again, mm-hmm. these are very fussy. They're a pain to make. You always had to be cutting your own reeds or quills, and they wear out quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And v- very, very important thing, if you go to your art supply store and get a modern steel fine tip pen, mm-hmm. you cannot write in a normal way that you learned c- cursive in America at least, that pen will not correctly write if you push it up. Mm -hmm. Strokes have to come down and sideways, and maybe you can go up a little bit, but you cannot draw a line up. Mm -hmm. And this is true of many, many writing implements. The characteristic look of quickly written Egyptian has to do with the fact that all of their strokes are going down. The characteristic look of quickly written Roman writing, it's because they're used to scrapping scraping things on wax tablets and only going down. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So one of the, the famous conlangs in the world, somewhat um, uncelebrated, is Tsoliani, uh-huh. which, is, which is Barker's you know, role-playing system. And he has a writing system for his language, which is the most appalling thing. <laughs> <laughs> I know some people like it. But it's terrible because I can think of no writing implement that that would work for given the technology of that world. It has lots Mm -hmm. of loops and curves that require you to draw up. Mm -hmm. Further, it has variations and thick and thin that make no sense Mm -hmm. at all. (laughs) Again, consider your uh, writing system. Considering your writing implements. With a brush, you can do up... With, uh, with some of these styluses, you can't. Right. And I was going to, I was saying the thing about this, at least for 
uh, reed styluses and quills, the fact that you can't draw up, could that possibly affect the fact that only one script that I know of actually goes from bottom to top? Uh-huh. Um, vertical. Obviously, there's other practical concerns, like, obviously, you're going to have your hand in the ink all the time when you're doing that, but, um, I'm just curious as the, and we probably can't answer that because it's a little bit too sort of, we don't have any way to have evidence of it, but I just thought that might be a thought. Yeah, writing from top to bottom seems like a cognitive, terrible metaphor. Or writing from bottom to top, it just doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? Things fall down, not up. It's a very very unnatural movement. I mean, right? These metaphors determine a lot of how we think about things, and it seems very strange Mm -hmm. to decide to start at the bottom and go up. Yeah. Anyway, I I don't know how much that has to do with the the, the writing implements, but anyway. That's just a a, a small side note that I just thought of, but uh, we can move on to talking more. Sure. Um, one question I asked myself when I prepared uh, my notes is um, about pencils, um, because pencils these days are, well, they are uh, ubiquitous, can find them anywhere. Um, but I wanted to know um, when uh, they were first made, and I found out that um, um, it's basically since antiquity, uh, they used uh, lead pens, so pens with actual lead in it. Um, but those were very hard, and um, the writing material, if you used paper, for example, it had to be prepared specially. And also, of course, mm-hmm. uh, lead is detrimental to your health. And um, on Wikipedia, it said that um, in England, uh, they found um, uh, graphite um, deposits in this mid-16th century, roundabout. And um, that was when they started making pencils, actually, and that spread out and... Um, Mm-hmm. Well, so basically, we have pencils since the mid 16th century, as far oh, as I could find out. That's yeah. interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder because the rubber eraser obviously didn't come until we had rubber. Right, and that was invented in the 19th century, I think. So that that was where I had pencils pegged, but that may be just when um, when they were becoming more and more popular because you had a way to easily erase your graphite. But um, Well, more to the point, you had finally a reasonably priced writing material that would take it. Mm-hmm. Paper. Uh-huh. Paper, right? By this point, paper is readily available in Europe. Yep. Right. Also, we might add, uh, that's probably tangential, but um, what I find interesting is that um, in Europe, um, paper really came into fashion in the, with the Renaissance, um, when they you uh, when they made it out of um, out of rags, um, and um, where is my note? Uh, anyway, um, in Italy uh, they they made paper first, as far as I know, and then it spread north, um, so that by the thirteenth um, century, if I remember correctly, you had the first paper mills, for example, in Germany, and it spread north from there. Yeah, also mm-hmm. France and England. Uh, and the the important thing is about paper that it's much 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 cheaper than parchment because it's much easier to make um and um yeah so um right and yeah the raw material a tree it takes less work to produce than a cow that's right also <laughs> also uh, as i said at first they made uh, paper out of rags and um well you probably have uh 
no shortage of rags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say, we have these cute kits from Egypt that's a holder for reeds and some dried inks and a little water pot. And that collection was the hieroglyphic for various writing-related things. But they always had extra <laughs> reads because you, you were going through those guys pretty quickly. Oh, I found my note. Sorry to interrupt. Um, it was the 14th century when it uh, came to uh, north of the Alps. Okay. Um, paper, okay. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no problem. So, um, so, and then the, so the wait last... a minute. So, so wait a minute. Just the, 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 a drawing of your hieroglyphics kit was a determiner for, was, was actually a hieroglyphic sim- symbol. Yes, a little bit better, huh? That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess the last writing implement worth talking about is that needle that was used for palm leaves. I, I was not able to find an, an image of what that thing must have looked like, but I would not want to write that way. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, let's see here. Uh, just a few. Qu- I mean, we've focused a lot on the technology. It seems worthwhile to say a few things about who is actually doing all of this writing. Um, it seems worthwhile to mention that for much of the history of mankind, learning to write meant learning to write in a dead language. Mm-hmm. Sumerian, Latin, Greek, which is mm-hmm. a bit archaic, classical Chinese versus modern Chinese. I mentioned in an earlier show that for a very long time, little French kids in school learned spelling and language first with Latin because the spelling made more sense than French spelling. <laughs> 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 um, and, and that's been true for a long, long time. You, you, you're learning some weird language that is not used by the rest of the people, usually. Even Egyptian went through periods where there may be a brief period when the language written more or less corresponded to what was being spoken, but then you'd have centuries where they persisted in using a centuries-old or you know almost millennium-old style of the language. Um, what's also fits. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just going to say, I think that fits with, um, periods of time when your, um, people who can read and write have a certain special status, particularly if they are only aristocracy or even only a class of scribes. But anyway, Karsten, what you were going to say? Um, what was I going to say? Um, uh, yeah, speaking of, um, who could write, um, usually as far as I know from, uh, from university, um, aristocracy did not necessarily need, uh, need to read and write. So they had scribes to do that. Um, so fa- uh, famously, for example, uh, uh, Charlemagne, no, how, uh, Charlemagne, pronounced? Charlemagne, Charlemagne. Right. um, he was illiterate, although he encouraged education and literacy. Right. I am possibly descended from Charlemagne, by the way. But anyway. Probably half of Europe is. Um, uh, There's some other king, I forget who, who's famous for saying, you know, um, he was doing some diplomatic thing and some monk gently corrected his Latin. And he's like, I'm the king. I'm above grammar. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, there's, um, I remember reading in uh, The Last Lingua Franca. I think I mentioned this on the show before. Um, Persian, the Persian Empire early on in, in, uh, in Persia, the aristocrats were sort of willfully illiter- illiterate. 
They just mm. didn't believe that it was worth the time of an aristocrat to learn how to read and write. <laughs> so they used scribes uh-huh. and they hired scribes that were um, Elamite and everything at that time. And even going on further, it, the, the trend continued that um, the official writings of the Persian Empire were never in Persian almost <laughs> for for a very long time. Right. I think until like the 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 Muslim period, yeah. yeah. Um, um, and also, um, I don't know uh, about English, but um, in Germany, um, it was the case that um, there is very very little writing in Old High German. So we're talking about um, the period between eight hundred and oh, no seventy uh, seven hundred fifty and one thousand roundabout. Um, and then there was the so-called uh, Ottonic Gap. Where um, the um, the ruling family changed, and they preferred Latin, so there wasn't mm-hmm. uh, much writing, or basically no writing in German anymore, as far as I know. And only um, by the time of Middle High German, that starts around about eleven fifty, no, thousand fifty. Oh, mm-hmm. I don't remember that correctly anymore. Anyway, um, only in Middle High German times um, they started writing things in German again. Wow, yeah, basically. That's so, um, for example, all those, um, cultural romances we have today, um, yeah, they were written in that time, um, mostly uh, based on French, um, on French models. And, um, yeah, since then we, uh, we see basically an explosion of, uh, writing in the popular languages. Yeah. It, it's worth mm-hmm. mentioning that this trend seems to be stronger when you have a non-alphabetic system. The Greeks and the Romans had very surprisingly widespread literacy, such that we have lots of very elevated things like graffiti, business letters, personal letters that were possible um, when you have an alphabetic system, which is much easier to learn than cuneiform or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's worth, I mean, I mentioned earlier Vindolanda, those tablets I mean, Vindolanda provides us with our first historical example of Latin written by a woman, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is just a letter to a friend. And another thing is, um, when you have a um, particularly a uh, logographic system, there can be sort of folk beliefs tied up in it that, like, um, Chinese, famously, there's a myth about Chinese that all the dialects can communicate to each other with each other through characters and anything that's written in mm-hmm. Chinese characters, anyone who reads Chinese can actually read. And that's not really the case, but right. people think that way. And, uh, <laughs> I it heard that may too. <laughs> have contributed to the, the fact that the, the two classical Chinese surviving so long, uh, mm-hmm. where, uh, it could you could have had more sort of intermittent reforms of making it more like the the spoken language. That's an interesting that's an interesting possibility. Um, um, another odd thing I just want to mention. Um, so before printing in China, which was developed earlier than the West, but mm-hmm. well, with uh, with uh, wooden printing presses, but. Before they even had that, often, if you wanted a text, you know, you 
it's probably the same as in any other place. You kind of, you, you buy the uh, materials. In this case, you buy the paper and you copy it yourself. Or you hire scribes to do it. Mm-hmm. And often, these scribes that people were hiring to copy over texts, like, you know, a big officials were hiring, were actually illiterate. They just were good at copying the calligraphy. Right. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. You get that in, in medieval, um, scr- uh, what do you call them? Um, scriptori- script- scriptorium? Scriptoria? Yes. Scriptoria, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Scriptoria. You get that there as well, as far as I know. So people mm-hmm. who um, copy text didn't necessarily be able to um, to read. Sometimes mm-hmm. they could, which causes its own sorts of problems in the transmission of text. But that's sort of a, right. a different issue. Um, you might, as we said, you might have a special class of scribes, which was certainly true in the ancient Near East. Um, I don't mm-hmm. know the details of what was going on. I didn't have time to check it up. What was going on in Mesoamerica? I don't know if there was a special class of scribes or a special family or, or whatnot and how that worked. Um, obviously, it presumably took a good lot of training to learn how to write mm-hmm. Mayan. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, because... All those el- elaborate kind of glyphs. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, it's comparable to Egyptian in the sense that there's the same number of symbols you have to figure out. But mm-hmm. yeah. um, since, since Mike's not here, I might bring up one thing that he brought up, which was calligraphy. And sort of what purpose did different calligraphy styles and such, uh, um, were, di- were different calligraphy styles and such used for? I know that in China, calligraphy is a huge art form. Mm-hmm. And often, like a traditional Chinese paintings, it's not really complete unless you have a poem written on the painting in some calligraphy style. And then, of course, about four stamps. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, yeah, those stamps are fun. Uh, what's interesting is there are a few cultures that really elevated, um, calligraphy to a high level. Obviously, the Chinese and everyone who Arabic. looked at their characters and Arabic. And that was partially motivated by a religious rule that says you cannot make images of the created world. Right. Um, what's really fascinating is that there uh-huh. are parts of the Chinese cultural zone that have Muslims who do calligraphy with brushwork in Arabic. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> does it, how, how, how different does it look from the traditional, what Arabic's traditionally written with like a reed stylus, right? Yeah, it's written with a, a wedged reed typically. Um, uh-huh. Some people, it looks very straightforward and other people, it looks a little bit, a little bit more wild. I mean, there are so many, I have several books and, and art on my wall of multiple different kinds of styles for, for writing mm-hmm. Arabic, but the, the, the Chinese brush ones are fun. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, I need to, when, when I move to Wisconsin, I'm going to visit your house to see your calligraphy collection. <laughs> I would like that too. Oh, that's just so far away. <laughs> anyway, I just thought I would I would mention. Um, that. <laughs> um so I think that's all we really had to talk about the technology of um literacy. Does anyone have any sort of final thoughts on this topic? We've gone on for we have gone on, on and, this. And, and my point for this is Obviously, I have this reputation of not writing right, uh, not liking invented writing systems. And part of the problem is I think very few of them 
look like they evolved with real writing implements on real writing surfaces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing we haven't mentioned so far, just uh, a short thing. Um, I remember my mother um, telling that when she was in primary school, uh, they'd use they'd still use slate tablets. So um, slate uh, was used um, up to the 1970s or something. Um, to in, in primary schools for kids to practice writing and um, early math, and uh, you mm-hmm. usually would write uh, on them with um, yeah, also with a slate um, stylus. Sure, chalk. I mean, it, or chalk, seemed, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and that to me seems like a continuation of the wax tablet, but it's easier right. to erase and and redo. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And um, um, I think it's probably also because, um, or maybe because. Um, Paper was rare, or um, well, not rare, but um, there was a shortage on paper after war, uh, World War II, and for example, in Germany. Um, so I, that might be a reason why they continued using those slate tablets instead of sure. paper. Sure. Yeah, and um, economics and environment really are going to figure in on what. So this is what part of the conworlding bit of this this uh, topic is. You want to, if you're actually setting this in a con world, you want to know uh, what the environment is like around. Uh, if it's tropical, you might have palm leaves. If you um, are near a river with a lot of papyrus reeds, you might have developed papyrus. If you have a tradition of rice farming, you might get paper very, very early. Uh, just, just think about what plant life... Are, is around whether um, how much sort of livestock there is. That's another thing. You know, part for parchment, you need to have plenty of cows uh, or sheep or sheep or sheep for vellum. Uh, so that just think about your environment and also about the economics. Can they trade with somebody who makes papyrus? Can they trade mm-hmm. with somebody who makes paper? Right. That's that's a whole lot of thing. And also think about the expense and, you know, yep. how much does it take to actually buy like two sheets of paper? Because those things were expensive at that time. Most of these materials were fairly expensive. Maybe maybe wax was probably cheaper because you can just kind of rewrite stuff. Yeah. Um yes. uh, so, yeah, that's I my have, own point. Really think about how these things happened, how they were really written, what sort of tool actually produces an output you want. And these days, unlike all of the periods we're talking about, it's easy to get a wedged calligraphy pen or an, a dipping pen, or you can um, get a Chinese brush pretty much anywhere these days. You can mm. practice and play with these different techniques and get a writing system that looks like actual human beings used it for a long time. Yeah, you can just go online and order uh, a prof- a good calligraphy kit, and I or I or I assembled one while I was in China of things that I bought in different shops. But yeah, um, what else was I going to say? I had one final sort of note. I was going to say, I don't know. I'll, I'll remember it after the show. Um, <laughs> so, Karsten, since we're we're done with this topic and we're about to hang up on you. I still uh-huh. want to give you get your final words of wisdom before you go. What what oh. final words of wisdom do you have for all the conlangers out there? It can um, be about this topic or it can be about something else. Um, well, people often ask me about my writing system that is this Tahano Hikamu thing. Um, 
how long uh, it took to make it or, um, well, uh, if I have any advice uh, for them. And I think the most important advice is when you try to design a very uh, a good writing system that looks, um, well, that looks probable, just take your time. Uh, don't hasten it. It just needs to, um, yeah, it just needs time to produce something good. And also yeah. write a lot in it. Write a lot in it. Just scribble stuff down in it. Play with it. It really pays off. Yes. Get the appropriate implements if you can and Do play it. with those. Right. Do a lot of it. Um, okay. All right. Well, we'll see you, Karsten. Thanks and for coming on. We're going to... What? Yeah, thanks. Uh, <laughs> and I will... As soon as I figure out how to do this, uh, see ya. And I'm going to bring on Larry Sulky. Hello, Larry. Hello. All right. So we have Larry Sulky, and the reason we have him on is our featured conlang today is Larry's conlang Chakwan. So, uh, Larry, why don't you talk, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, how you got into conlanging, and also about, um, and introduce us to the Chakwan language. Uh, all right. Um, I don't have a lot of training, uh, in linguistics. I took a course in, uh, in university. Uh, but I have been fascinated by languages for a long time, and I've made many abortive efforts to learn a number of them. The only one I've had uh, pretty decent success with, uh, only two, were Portuguese and French. Um, one thing that happened or that, or that I encountered in, I believe it was 1975, was I got my hands on a copy of Logland One. Uh, I saw it advertised in Analog Science Fiction Magazine. Oh, yeah. Ordered this, and uh, I thought, and this was, and I had studied things like Esperanto. Um, up to that point, and I thought, now this is extremely cool. It's extremely unspeakable, but it's also <laughs> extremely cool. Uh, yes. And so that set me uh, along a path, and I didn't realize it at the time, but over the, my years of growing into uh, more fully adulthood, I recognized that I have a small but real, um, I would I don't know if I would call it a learning disability, but a a disability when it comes to parsing language. It takes me longer, and ambiguities absolutely flummox me. Um, I learn over time how to uh, to work around the problem, but uh, it's very easy for people to say something to me, and I interpret it the wrong way, or I see so many interpretations that I get stuck, and I don't parse what they intended. They and all the other listeners are either aghast or believe I'm just being ornery. And uh, uh, so I end up getting the wrong information uh, constantly. And so when I thought back to Logland, I thought, hmm, now there was a language that maybe could have helped me in that regard because it's it's pretty much impossible to be ambiguous in Logland. Well, I think you probably can, but it's very, very difficult. <laughs> yeah, pretty much anything is very difficult in Logland. <laughs> But it is it is very cool. And so that inspired me initially to start creating auxlangs that um, were not quite as rigorous as Logland, but that did uh, uh, try to achieve some of the same objectives. And uh, over time, uh, I found that I was never quite satisfied with what I was achieving and also was recognizing that 
it wasn't really a new Oxlang that uh, that anybody particularly needed, but that I thought it was legitimate for me to use many of the same design points in what would for me simply be a conlang. And so that's what mm-hmm. I did in several attempts and um, uh, eventually got to uh, Chakwan. And I find that each time I create a new language, I'm working with largely the same parameters, but trying to get it just a little bit better. It's like those the, the painter who does a, a landscape, but then does a series of landscapes, trying to get just that certain something uh, each time. And Maybe getting closer each time, but never quite getting right exactly the sweet spot they were trying to get. I know that feeling very wow. well. Yep. So tell us a little bit. The uh, The site that we found is very interesting because it looks like it's sort of a teaching guide. It's it's um, There's exercises and such, and um, and it's very much sort of geared towards linguistically naive people as well as um um us is that sort of part of what you were aiming for was sort of trying to teach people the language um yeah and they don't have to be real people i find that when i am trying to understand something i understand it best if i can explain it to others and mm-hmm. When I and I've had some success in the past with some other uh, conlangs in intriguing people enough that they began to engage in it with me, and for me that's really the most fun of all. Um, Jim Henry, whose name I'm sure you know, yeah. uh, yes. puts it very very well. He uh, he states that it's not really the enthusiasm of the creator that uh, bodes well or ill. For a conlang, it's the enthusiasm of the second person to have a go at it. So Jim was Jim was a, a an early adopter of one of my earlier languages, and we worked on that to, you know, in a collaborative fashion for a while. Gary Shannon, another mm-hmm. favorite on the conlang, uh, picked up Elomi uh, with me, and and he did as much with it as I did. In fact, there was certainly a time there where. If challenged to speak it aloud, he probably would have been better at it than I would. And uh, mm-hmm. for me, that's uh, that's a very exciting thing. That makes uh, the whole experience uh, uh, very worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I really, to me, I can't think of any other conlang that's pre- – to me, the, the presentation looks like a website version of those inductive learning books. Yeah, good. I, I, I don't know if those are much used anymore, but certainly in the 70s and 80s, you'd be like Latin, the inductive way, or Hopi, the inductive way. And you have these – the format looks very much like this, and that you get a few examples, and then you're expected to do some things yourself, and then some examples, and then this this mix without, you know, pages of charts. Right, right. And, and stuff I like find that. that if I'm doing pages of charts, um, I, I I have a lot of background in corporate training, and – so I, I, I think pages of charts are great as a reference, but if I'm trying to understand what I'm doing and, and of course, one of the design points uh, of the languages that I work on is um, ease of comprehension and learning. And so if I can put together a website that demonstrates, look, in fact, it is easy to learn. Here's the material that you could learn it from. Uh, then I feel mm-hmm. as though I've gotten closer to that sweet spot that I'm looking for. 
So that's got- uh, that's great. Um, I I'd say it probably makes it a little harder for us to um to uh evaluate it and and review it here on on Con Langry because of the fact that we don't have the charts to reference and and uh actual like Leipzig glosses, but I like the way that it's laid out so that you can learn the language if you want to. Yeah, um, the closest I've got to those glosses is things like the McGuffey reader exercises. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Oh well, I could a Gary Shannon idea, as a matter mm-hmm. of fact. Um, but yeah, and and truthfully, um, you guys are are not really the target audience. Yeah. It's yeah. you know it's my it's my friends and acquaintances that uh, that get on this and and look at this mm-hmm. and think, well, this is extremely strange. But, <laughs> mm-hmm. but they kind of go through it and they, they, they have a go at it. Yeah. Um, I saw, I'm, I'm looking through a few things. I no- did notice that you have a particle to mark, uh, proper nouns. Yes. That's an interesting sort of innovation. Is that sort of a, an ambiguity reducing device? Right. That allows me to have uh-huh. proper nouns that don't have to follow the morphology of the language. Uh huh. Um, William, do you have any particular uh, observations that you might want to ask Larry uh, about? Sure. Um, I'm trying to find – I was looking through this a few days ago, and I was trying to find – you have these little particles that start with W and Y. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I noticed some of them get paired in ways that are very interesting. And I'm trying to find the one that struck me so much. I mean, do you want to talk a little there's, bit about sure. this? There, there's a couple of them where the pairing kind of makes sort of sense if you look at it sideways, and a few <laughs> others where it doesn't make sense. It's just a cute mnemonic trick, um, and I'm trying to, to you know, cast back myself. I, I believe an example is um, uh, th- there's one construct, which is yo which uh, essentially works like the relativizer or, excuse me, the um, um, the dependent clause marker, that. And mm-hmm. the way that you mark the end is that you simply reverse the two particles, yo-wa. And, you know, why would that mean end of that? Well, because it doesn't occur any other time, and the language is starved for um, short and easily pronounced words that fit the overall morphological constraints and so so I went ahead and used it. So this mm-hmm. is a language that logicians would look at initially perhaps and say, oh how fascinating. He's quite logically here. And then they would encounter points that would outrage them. <laughs> yeah. I, I find the longer so this may be apparent to some people who've been listening to the show for a long time is I get a little cranky about generative linguistics. So I'm trying to learn about theories of language that do not require giant trees and that require me to believe strange things about how human brains work. Um, and I'm starting to come to the view that not only are sounds collected into words arbitrarily related to the thing that they indicate, right? There's nothing about the sounds in cat that means furry quadruped who sometimes scratches people. I'm starting to come to the opinion that words are the same way, that you can use two or three words together and you don't, you can't decompose them. 
that when you put them together that way, they mean something all by themselves. And that's just the way it is. So maybe logicians would be upset with some of your particle chains. But to me, I think that's much more natural. And even if the language is aiming at being unambiguous, that still doesn't mean everything is perfectly decomposable. Units have meaning. That, that's correct. And, and I subscribe to the same view. I used to struggle to find some perfect way of constructing compound words. And, uh, eventually I realized, you know, a, a compound word exists because there was a need for a word. And rather than invent a wholly new collection of consonants and vowels, someone decided to put two words together. So we have these small, flat, round things on which we record music, and we call them compact discs. Well, I can think of only a few other combinations that are less descriptive of what that thing is for and what it does. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And yet compact disc is the word that we use. In fact, we don't even hyphenate it. It's two separate words. If I, in fact, have a disc that is compact and I want to say to someone, look, a compact disc, they'll look at it. So, no, it's not. In fact, oh, now we have to say, we have to circumlocute. A disc that is compact, right. not a compact disc, of course, because that word's been taken over. Right. Right. So uh, a very interesting thing in Chakwan that I do not make hay of in the materials, but uh, in my private design notes, and you'll see allusions to it, is the concept of uh, self-segregating morphology, which I've been given to understand is really not quite the correct term. But the idea is that a not just a reader, but a listener to utterances in Chakwan could know where words and morphemes, for that matter, begin and end. Um, and that always fascinated me about Logland. And so the languages that I have created have generally followed uh, that kind of a design point, as has um, Rex May's uh, Changli and, and a few others that, uh, yeah. that we could mention. Um, GZB started trying to do that, but then I think he gave up. Right. He, he uh, Jim remained uh, close to the concept, um, but yeah, it, it's difficult to do. Um, uh, well, who, we should. Well, um, I, I I should tell you. Um, actually, in our previous he- episode, we had we featured Gazimbun, uh and we had Jim Henry on the show. Uh, to our listeners, we record these in advance and have a buffer ready, so uh, Larry hasn't listened to that episode yet. So, yep. Yeah. Well, I will have to do so. <laughs> Uh, Jim's a, yes. he's a, he's a great, uh, and creative, uh, and supportive force, uh, on the, the Conlang, um, listserv. He's, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, no matter how high tensions might rise, not to say that they do rise all that high compared to some other bulletin board environments, uh, he will always be, uh, a voice of calm and reason. And if he has his points to make, he'll make them and he will never once, uh, use the kind of language that starts to, to trigger flame wars. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Anyway, uh, anything more about Chuck Juan that I should uh, reveal to you? Oh, um, there is one thing that's kind of funny. I invented a, a history for it. I noticed and, that. Yeah. And uh, this got it misinterpreted as a, a real awesome. Polynesian martial language, Marshall Islands language. For for some time, <laughs> can, 
um, do you have a reference to where that happened? Because I'm I've been collecting lists of where conlangs are mistaken for natlangs. Oh, oh, the the den den. Yeah, um, I will. I don't have a, a it handy. I remember it. It came up. Oh, there was there was some discussion. Someone was talking about let's learn a conlang, and someone suggested, well, what about this chakwan? And I think someone else said, oh no, that's a that's apparently a, a, nat- a natural language from the Marshall Islands. <laughs> no, no, guys, it's you know I should have put like the the fiction um, disclaimer like they do at, at novels. You know, uh-huh. the, these fixtures are these characters are fictional. So I actually um, did that at the beginning of my grammar of Iurio. I I I specifically I didn't really write a proper like legal disclaimer, but. I have a preference preference that mentioned that it is a fictional language. Not that anyone would really, <laughs> con- really confuse get confused about Ayuruyo because I talk about spirits throughout the entire uh, grammar, so they probably shouldn't know think that it's real. But you know, well, in case you might have some some preface or something. I think that the sort of people that would thoroughly believe in those spirits are probably not the people that would be reading your your information though yeah (laughs) probably not of course then we we saw you know this uh these languages that are being pulled up in uh you know in sweeps not being Mm -hmm. uh perused carefully and being flagged as natural languages yeah i think people are doing um sort of trolling for features yeah and god knows codlingers love their interesting features so I, I think that's that's what happens. So um, what do you think or, or what is your process for sort of semantic space and how do you make those decisions? Because while there is much about Chakwan that has sort of an aroma of being IA, you know, Oxlangish a little bit, it's very regular. Um, various parts of speech are, are have the same sorts of endings or have identical endings rather. But then you have particles like we which covers uh-huh. a really interesting range of meanings. Yeah, yeah. Uh and and it's again partly because well you mentioned the 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 morphemic space and and I'll throw in the the phonological space as well because I set myself some design points and, and these are constraints. Uh it's not merely a matter of, you know, do I like the sound that uh, that cool Dutch vowel um that you hear in words like sleutel. Uh-huh. Um you know that's a great sound. Am I going to include it or not in in a in a language? Um, a lot of the times, the constraints I'm working on are very severe. I'm saying, okay, it's a Polynesian language. It's going to have a very limited native phonology. Uh, there's a mechanism mm-hmm. for incorporating more, but it's very limited, and it has self-segregating morphology. Just you know, if it because the the limited phonology just wasn't difficult enough. So now we're going to have very strict rules about the shapes of words as well as the sounds of words. Now we're down uh, to some uh, real tight constraints in the number of, let's say, uh, small words or short words that we can have. So I will tend to use those small words um, and get as much use as I can out of them, uh, which it sounds odd, I think, sometimes uh, when we look at, you know, gee, how can we mean sort of at and and in the normal relation to uh, and all these things. But then I think about, okay, what about the word of in English? What do we use of for? 
Absolutely. I'm pretty sure if I open the dictionary, I can have, I can probably find 30 definitions for the word of. And so, and, and some of those things I'll decide, okay, let's see, these five definitions of of are all roughly associative. And so I'll use the particle wa for all of them. Whereas this reuse of of that we use so frequently, that doesn't fit at all. It's really quite different. And therefore I'll, I'll have to come up with a different particle for that. An example that I come mm-hmm. to is, um, uh, a photograph of the teacher. Oh, really? The teacher's in that photograph. No, I mean the photograph that belongs to the teacher. The photo yeah. teacher's not in the photograph. Oh, okay. So that's a different thing. And so I will go through and kind of hit these things. And oftentimes I hit them as I'm developing the website and amusing myself by coming up with a, you know, some sentences or some ideas and some, a little bit of, uh, vocabulary and then do an exercise. And it may be at that time that I, hit these stumbling blocks. Uh, and since I've done this a few times through, I'm, I'm a little more prepared for the stumbling blocks, but I still will hit them and kind of delight myself at, at finding a way around them and sometimes sadden myself at realizing, wow, I am, I'm way deep in this and I have worked myself into a, a corner. And I, I don't know how I'm going to get out of it. That's, that's really amazing. Um, one of the, Interest that uh, what interests me is that even though you are trying to reduce ambiguities, you still end up with this sort of sort of particles and ad positions and such end up having these broader meanings that are kind of natlangy in a way, and that usually a particle or an ad position or something we've talked about this before will have a wide variety of definitions. Yeah. yeah. I think that's that's really interesting to to talk about putting limits on yourself and really working within that and getting uh, sometimes I think that's more creative. I mean, you know, we have this romantic idea that all possibilities are out there and you should just go for it. But there is something to be said I think for Picking constraints and staying with them and then making them work, I think, uh, can produce a language that is more naturalistic than maybe even you intended to do. I, I don't know, I'm, but I keep trying to get there. So I keep looking at things <laughs> that, that, you know, I mean, to, you know, my dream constructed language is one that has all of these, uh, all these design points, uh, minimal phonology so that everybody can participate. A non-significant stress because no one agrees on what stress sounds like. And, and if you've listened to some of my, uh, my colleagues, uh, when they speak and their native language is not English, depending on what their native language is, it's quite clear. They come from a, a linguistic background where stress just doesn't matter. And so they speak in a straight monotone. And so if I, if I want them to be able to hypothetically participate in this language, then I, I want to remove that as a, as a, as a, uh, uh, a, phonemically significant feature. You know, I'm looking for consistency and, mm-hmm. and logic. And yet I also want it to be adaptive inter- of international words one way or another. I, you know, and I love the idea of spoken punctuation so that we, you know, we don't convey meaning by how long we pause. Why? Simply because I had a friend years and years ago for whom the appropriate pause time for him to wait to be sure that you had finished talking was approximately four seconds. And of course, you would start wow. talking again because you thought that he had nothing to say. So he never said anything because he was waiting for you to really, really, really be finished talking. So all these weird little <laughs> silly things, 
that uh, they they go into to inform these decisions I I make, and uh, and yeah, they they kind of drive me crazy. You know, I I have to be uh, a little bit careful during my commute to work that I'm not thinking about you know how am I going to to best make use of my limited uh, morphological and phonological space. Well, one thing you did, we just you know the show about. Um, isolating and analytic languages. One of the things we talked about was serial verbs and verb chains, and I'm very delighted to see that Chakwan has these. Is another great way to take limited resources and make them dance. Yep. I thank you. And I, I I invented the word verb chains or the term verb chains by myself, not realizing that it was in fact an accepted term for what I was trying to get across. So it, mm-hmm. I kind of lucked out there. Well, this happens to conlangers all the time. Although we don't usually recreate the correct terminology for them. <laughs> so that's a little bit more surprising. Yeah. Yes. But there's, I guess what I, I aimed for with Chakwan when I really look back on it and try and look at it as a whole was, um, uh, uh, sort of a, a, a whimsical take on, on a logical language. You know, I don't, and I don't mean, I don't mean whimsical as in uh, uh, sardonic or, or or a parody or farce. I mean let's let's take a, a logical crack at this, but let's let's wink an eye. Let's have a little fun with this as well. Not not take yourself too seriously. Right. So you know what's the what's a common greeting in in Chakwan? Namaste. But that's just like the the Hindi word, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It mm-hmm. is. They borrowed it. So in, in, in my little imaginary world, they're doing this kind of stuff all the time. And in my little, um, my little history there, our, our, um, our history writer, the person who is uh, putting together this <laughs> monograph concedes that, that his own group has already corrupted the sample by introducing the Italian term chow, uh, and which <laughs> the, the Chakwani immediately leap upon as a, as a delightful word. That fits their their uh, uh, morphology quite nicely, and so voila, he's gone in in attempting to be this, this careful linguist and observe this intriguing phenomenon, has gone and corrupted his own uh, his own uh, subjects. Yeah, I read that. I found that amusing. That chow, <laughs> like oh yeah. Um, um, I I I feel like that, um, and this is going to sound like a really weird comparison, but listening to you talk, I feel like what you did. To you did to logical languages what World of Warcraft did to massively mul- multiplayer online games. In you have, George, you are going to have to translate that for me. Yeah, me too. Um, so there's there's a class of uh of video games known as MMOs or massively multiplayer online games, and they have certain sort of the whole idea is that uh, everybody's playing on one server and uh, they're usually like fantasy adventure games and stuff. And a whole lot of it is um, sort of working in groups and stuff. World of Warcraft is the most famous and uh, still the uh, lar- has the largest number of players. Although there are other there's there's another game that's coming up on them. And what the way they built that audience was, they took the uh, the the tropes and stuff of other MMOs like EverQuest, but they simplified it. So, like 
older MMOs like EverQuest were incredibly difficult and it took years to get a character up to the level cap. Whereas in World of Warcraft, it, they made it a whole lot easier and they keep making it easier and easier. So I think, and they also don't take themselves very seriously. So in short, so, so I don't risk explaining my analogy any, uh, too far. The idea is that like Loglan and Lojban are immensely complicated lo- logical languages that are possibly in, are, could arguably be impossible for a human to learn. But you have taken sort of a similar philosophy, but sort of quote unquote dumbed it down, so to speak, so that normal people might have a chance of learning how to speak Chakwan. Yeah. Yes. Thanks. That's, that's uh, exactly what, uh, what I was aiming for. Uh, that's what Rex May, uh, was aiming for with Chengli. That's what, um, uh, uh, Dana, um, oh gee, I'm blanking on his name. Nutter? Yes, thank you. Dana Nutter, uh, was, uh, attempting to do not, not rigidly self-segregated morphology, but, but doing a somewhat similar concept with, with a few of his languages, um, which was, you know, some of the logic and the, the deambiguization, uh, is a cool thing. Um, but, Let's maybe also recognize that people are people, and there do seem to be some pretty standard ways that languages divvy up um, the mm-hmm. the universe. And so, and and to be fair to Logland and Lojban, those the Logland particularly was designed as a hypothetical test of the Saper Wharf hypothesis, and so uh, James Cook Brown had to come up with some things that were going to be challenging to language speakers, at least within the, the um, language families that he was using as his uh, vocabulary base. You know, he couldn't do something that was just like them because uh, then he wouldn't be able to, to prove or disprove anything. Right. Mm-hmm. So, whereas for me, I just thought, geez, if only when someone said turn right here, I, I didn't think that they meant turn right but understood they meant turn here immediately yeah you know or when i see the word manslaughter written on the page i don't simultaneously see the word man's laughter and unfortunately mm-hmm. i do and so you know and it's or you know the 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 sucero problem in in esperanto if it even is a problem the fact that sucero can either be a root uh, with a noun ending or it can be um a compound with ero or the er the error um infix and it can it can uh, be interpreted either way and of course regular ordinary people always know do you mean a drop of juice or do you mean sugar uh and of course i'm sort of out at the far end of the bell curve where people can talk this way and i actually don't know even from the context uh and i have to think about it long and hard by that i mean several seconds before it finally sinks in, oh, we are talking about sugar here. By that time, of course, the conversation's moved on. I've missed my exit, and and I am seen as as uh, being sort of coyly obnoxious. Uh-huh. Huh. So it's a little bit hard for me to to see 
because uh, I didn't do all the lessons, <laughs> and, uh, except for one or two texts you don't do um, the interlinears. Um, are there characteristic modes of expression in Chakwan that are really seriously alien to English? Um, I mean, obviously you have things like these verbal quote marks and, and other kinds of verbal punctuation. And, and that would be probably the only thing that's quite alien. Okay. Most of the other stuff is stuff that has a, uh, well, the fact that, that I unambiguously mark, uh, the self-segregating morphology, uh, but, but that doesn't stand out. It's not, it's not, uh, blatant. A person right. can read through all of Chakwan and never realize that it has that feature. Right. Um, the, uh, the idea being that the fact that they can always determine what words were spoken might eventually give them a clue, but probably they're not even going to worry about it. Yeah. But the uh, the spoken punctuation is the one thing that really marks this as an oddball that you s- seldom see um, in natural languages. In fact, I suspect that those few cases where you... Uh, there are probably some particles in some languages that simply they could be reinterpreted as um as punctuation particles but we choose not to because it's somehow we we want to assign more to it than that um the the word that as a as a um a clause boundary marker or japanese has uh, what wa and ga uh for mm-hmm. between the topic and the and the and the predicate um right and uh, and pardon me if i get the terminology wrong i you know the my knowledge of linguistic theory is vastly inferior to that of most of the folks uh, on uh, the Conlang listserv, for example. But, no, yeah, that's, I would, that's, that's I, I would not say a problem, that, though. Yeah, I, I would say that the, uh, the e- even things like au to end every verb or oi to end every adjective, well, you can go to Russian and you can find characteristic endings like oi, at least for masculine singular. Sure. Sure. Uh, masculine singular nominative. You can find a consistent. Well, English has the 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 uh, the present uh, participle or or uh, progressive tense ending in ing, and and boy, that's that's really consistent. So the one thing you don't find, I guess, is nouns always ending in the same uh, letter or letter combination. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. I mean, I'm thinking in terms of things like um, the particle we. Mm-hmm. has a number of different functions which like to an l1 english speaker is going to seem very surprising so when to me because you know i'm 40 mumble years old and i've been conlanging for more than half my life now and you know learning about at least if not actually learning natural languages there's nothing about we that terrifies or alarms me mm-hmm. um it doesn't surprise me I mean, it's interesting the range of meanings it has, but I'm like, okay, it does this sort of adverby thing, and it does kind of you're right, yeah. so I can figure it out. People who don't have that background, how do they respond to something like the particle we? Well, I actually do have a a small sample of of one uh, uh, a friend who um, did not struggle with it um, as long as. She was using it with its uh, in its adverbial role. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. When it was in its sort of prepositional role, uh, she really wanted we to be more specific. Oh, um, sure. And a similar thing happened with with woo. 
which is uh, a word that, in fact, English needs and does not have. So, in talk, so we'll talk about we first. Uh, we is often translated as at, but it doesn't necessarily mean at. It means in the usual relationship to. What do you do when you when you go to the table? Do you sit on the table, under the table, at the table? Well, you, you sit at the table. Now, if you do need to be very clear about exactly your relationship with respect to the table, then you can certainly do that. But uh, it, it is it is fun to watch folks struggle a bit with this, especially when you can then give them a little bit of a of a lesson and perhaps a lesson about English as well. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, when you challenge someone, okay, tell me exactly what at does mean. I mean, like if I say he's at the door, uh, where in relation to the door? Is it that specific? And, uh, you know, or at the table or at the conference? If he's at the conference, is he like waiting outside or nearby or what? And they start to realize, oh, you know what? In English, at is not really all that specific either, is it? Nor is of and, and so on. And then we get to this other, one of my favorite words in Chakwan, which is wu, um, which simply means with respect to. Um, I don't mean respect like uh, the, uh, an, an attitude, but in relation to or um, concerned with. It's sort of the, uh, a filler preposition that doesn't have a, a clear-cut meaning. And in English, we tend to use the word of in an idio- with an idiomatic sense about it. Can you give uh, some examples or whatever your Well, let me use? see if I, can, if I can come up with one handy here. Um, it's often used as an oblique object marker. Here's a good one. Um, you are good at dancing. Uh-huh. You're good. You're good at dancing. Well, you're good with respect to dancing. When we talk dancing, you're good at it. Well, that's a case where woo is a good word for that. And again, we could be much more precise and probably bring some other verbs in if we needed to be really specific. But woo stands in well for that kind of a, uh, a usage. And so, you are good with respect, you know, regarding dancing, you're good at it. Uh-huh. Hmm. And can of course, you, 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 can tell, you can tell we need such a word in English because the way you have to do it in English, if you don't want to use a, an overly specific preposition like at or of or in or on, is you have to say with respect to or regarding. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, I really would love to see this conversation continue, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately, this episode is already very, very long, and also we have a limited time for me and William to talk about what we're going to do for the next episode. So I'm afraid I'm going to have to kind of cut it off um, if that's all right with you, Larry. Uh, well, certainly, and this is probably um, more than I've talked about uh, Chakwan all in one go with uh, oh, ever. Okay. So I really, <laughs> I really appreciate the uh, the chance to to wax uh, euphoric or euphonic or narcotic about it. <laughs> well, I, um, uh, just like to thank you for mm-hmm. uh, for having me on and uh, uh, letting us talk about it. Great. Great. Um, Thanks for coming. I will on. have a couple links in the in the show notes. Um, there's a bunch of audio samples of Chuck One that I wasn't able to play, uh, and you know this this 
teaching text that I, I, I was, we were, we were all referencing. And, um, I think it would be great for a lot of our listeners. A lot of our listeners would l- probably love to look at all that stuff. So look at our show notes, follow the links, read about Chakwan. And, uh, Larry, before we go, um, I don't have any feedback today. Uh, we don't really have time for it anyway, but, um, so all, uh, all I will say is people, um, email conlanger at gmail.com with your thoughts and stuff. Also leave comments. There, there are some interesting comments threads going on, but, uh, and, uh, also, Keep sending me those top of the show greetings because I am continually lo- running low on those. Uh, but before we actually get out of here, Larry, are there any, do you have any final words of wisdom on conlanging in general on anything? Um, I have one quick little word of wisdom. It's actually a very tiny story and it's a perfect story. I was at an, uh, an art show where some people that I was familiar with were displaying their art. And one friend of mine, an artist, introduced me to a fellow that she knew who was also an artist. And she said, Larry creates languages. And he looked at me and he said, why would you do that? And I pointed to his painting right behind him and I said, why would you do that? Awesome. He said, I get it. (laughs) Yes. That's That's my word. That's that's that's, that's that's our whole philosophy here, I think. Uh, William, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, not that I already didn't beat on in our section on writing systems, so nope. All right, then with that, I am going to say happy conlanging. You have been listening to Conlangery. You can find the show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at conlangery.com, including links to our featured conlang and a few resources to help you make sense of today's topic. You'll also find links to subscribe to us on iTunes or through other podcatchers, to our Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus pages, and a whole lot more. Questions, comments, and suggestions may be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. You can also submit those translated greetings we play at the top of the show or conscripts to display in our header. Please see the contribute page for details. Thanks for listening. I don't think it, I can't on the really side. Think Just one thing on the side. Did I ex- uh, accidentally add um, Larry back by posting the link in the chat window? Uh, no. Oh, did is he? There we <laughs> oh, go. No, he's out. Good. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> More I'm editing sorry. for George. <laughs> That's yeah. fine. Um, right. As soon as he answers. So we had like three pages of notes. Yeah, I really produced them. My thought was that we would be able to get through a lot of it quickly, which we did.